Um, if you could turn in your Bible uh, to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, I have some texts I'm going to read that aren't Revelation 3. I'll read that one, but it um, probably gives you the most significant picture of, of, of what's going to take place in part of the sermon, at least. Revelation 3. Let's pray. Lord, I ask a blessing upon our time here in this um, worship service where we read your word, where I um, share what I've learned in the course of uh, its study and how my life has affected it, been affected by it. Pray that uh, the congregation would have ready hearts themselves to Respond to your word by your spirit's prodding and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, I'm going to read some verses, but I want to start, and I'm going to tell you my first point, okay, is that Jesus compares people off and on to houses. And I'm going to read these. You can listen to these references. References, you'll see what I mean. It's an actual metaphorical comparison. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not, and does them, sorry, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So he compares a person to a house in that teaching. Luke 11, beginning in verse 24, this is a little more scary thought. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, Jesus is saying this, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So there again, a man or person is being compared to a house. Matthew thirteen fifty two, And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And then finally, Revelation, where I had you turn 19 and 20, written to a church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The metaphor of the house. Paul uses the house metaphor too, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 1 through 3. For we know 
that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. I want to use this metaphor. You can sit down, all right? It's the second point that I'm going to turn to now, and I, I want you to think of yourself as a house, just as the metaphor uh, was presented. Your whole being is the house, your body, soul, mind, heart, strength, it's all one. You are a house with rooms, okay, this is where I'm going to take and use this, closets, staircase, basement, roof, library maybe if you're lucky, bathroom, entryway, etc. Everyone is a house, okay? And nobody's house is perfect. In your house, the bed is unmade with pajamas on the floor of that room there. There's a leak where water comes into the porch on the south side. But look at the dining room. The table's beautiful. And there are paintings in the piano room. How lovely. The floor creaks too much in the kitchen, though that's probably a good thing. And the living room couch is as comfortable as the day you bought it. But it's your house. You decide what you want in it. You decide what you want to get rid of. You can remodel it. You can let it fall apart. My house. I try to remember what it was like before Jesus came into it. And really, it's, it's hard to remember how my mind even worked back then. I had built my, my house over time from age zero to sophomore year in college. It was... I reckon my little history of unbelief, or at least definitely of uncertainty and a refusal to commit to him. I always said I believed, right? At least that I acknowledged Jesus and God as facts. I didn't, con- didn't declare some unbelief like an atheist. Where does that get anybody? That's silly. Even if he didn't exist, you wouldn't declare it. And I'm not questioning it, his existence when I say that. Nonetheless, I, I think uncertainty and a refusal to commit is where we all start. I would not call what I had a faith when I was younger, at least not as I understand the meaning of the word now. I was a young Sunday morning only Lutheran boy. And when I bring up Lutheran, it's not to degrade Lutheranism, 
or Catholicism or Methodism or any other ism, any other church type. I'm just sharing my experience. Once I shared my experience in the past, brought up my Lutheran upbringing, and one of the people who, were, who had attended was offended as if I were speaking against Lutheran. So I make that clear right now. But I was a young Sunday morning only Lutheran boy. I'd prayed, I prayed at night for insurance just in case. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Forgive me my sins. I would say if you look back, I had a closet in my house marked God and church stuff. It made me feel better to have at least a closet that I could call Christian. It was a clean closet, (laughs) mostly because there wasn't much in it. A few towels, an unopened box of Q-tips, four-roll package of toilet paper, a bottle of cough medicine, things you might need. That's how I grew up. Show up for church with my family, sit quietly in the pew, say the liturgy when it came through, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, sing, sing songs that were familiar typically, wait for the pastor to finish preaching, get touched on the head during communion because I hadn't gone through confirmation yet, so he'd touch you on the head as a blessing. And then i go to Sunday school afterward, hang out with the other friends till we got old enough to goof around more than pay any attention. And then those after, those tacked-on bedtime prayers, that was my Christianity closet. Otherwise, I pretty much ran around my house like Kevin McAllister doing whatever I wanted. I felt guilty for some of the things I did growing up, I'll admit that. I imagine it was because of what I heard at church or things my parents and grandmother had told me. You do get lessons from TV. You watched a lot of TV, good lessons and bad lessons. And then friends and music and comic books and real books and, of course, teachers and school. And before you know it, in your little house, it's just filled with information and points of view which you're free to select the things you like and reject the things that make you uncomfortable. A lot to choose from, but it's still just you in there. Just you. I was in college and feeling less good about myself. I lived with my grandma and grandpa up in Superior, Wisconsin, But I had started doing things I'd never done in high school or as a boy. Not that those days were all pure. Now I had opportunities presented to me. Big boy opportunities. And one in particular seemed very exciting. It involved an illegal drug enterprise. I was not sure what I should do. I could make some good money at this, I was told. I kind of like the idea of becoming rich. 
but felt like the things I was considering were not things my parents would approve of. But I wasn't about to ask their advice either. So at this point, my conscience was feeling uh, heavy. I was feeling dirtier. And I'm very close to salvation. But I don't know it. I remember one day laying upstairs on my bed in my grandma's house, and it was just me inside myself with my guilt and my questions. What happened to my carefree younger days state of mind when I ran around shooting BB guns and eating junk and watching rubbish? I don't know. It wasn't all carefree anymore. Yet, even as a younger person, there was always and is still always something regularly turning the gears in my brain, in my mind. It's a a carousel, always, always moving. I'm always inside myself, inside my head. But isn't everybody? Anyway, I'm laying there and wondering, what should I do about this? This seems like an opportunity. And as I look back and reflect on the scene, I almost think of that scripture. Well, I do think of that scripture. Genesis, right? The earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Those are words from Genesis that speak of creation. And I was empty. I was formless. A formless college sophomore. And I need a new creation. And I can just picture then, now, how God was just waiting, hovering, anticipating what he would do next. And so I look at the Bible on the table near the bed, and then I reach for it, thinking this, okay? This is my scientific method. If I'm supposed to believe in God, and if he is real then he should be able to give me the answers to my questions. He should be able to guide me here. Some of you know the story, but I opened the cover to find my dad's name with a single Bible verse next to it. And I turned to the verse, and it was where Jesus warned his disciples to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Every word stuck. It impressed itself into my mind. In a sense, I I think God answered me. I, I assumed it was clear that the person who is offering me an opportunity to make some good money illegally is a wolf dressed up like a friend. I don't know. Maybe my dad had the same type of temptation when he was younger. Anyway, I decided I'm not going to do it. And that week I apologized, but refused my friend's offer. It got a little dicey for a moment or two, but it went past without incident. I thank God. But most importantly, most importantly, I realized 
that I may have just had an interaction with my Creator. Heaven and earth may have just touched. And this was new to me, and it intrigued me. You see, up until that time, it was just me in my house. And I don't know how firmly even to say this, but somehow I was no longer alone in my house. My younger self kind of always felt alone, not necessarily lonely, okay? Oh, poor me, I'm just all by my... I didn't feel like that. I was just alone. And yes, maybe in those years past, I had a sense I, I didn't exist freely. I didn't think I could just go and do whatever I wanted. I had parents and rules and punishments As I said, there were teachers and police and pastors, but more than that, there was always a feeling, and here's where I have to somewhat bite my tongue, there's always a feeling that the greater presence was near, or he would know. When I was younger, he was the encumbrance of any reckless abandon. But now I felt like that maybe he engaged me. I was not playing by myself under a shadow. He had now come closer. He showed up. So I kept reading scripture and and he kept showing up here and there. Not that I could see him. I, I couldn't hear him. But perhaps inside of my head I knew I do know he made an impression, and he expected me to respond. Listen, he made an impression, and he expected me to respond. He wasn't mean. He wasn't mean barking, don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. It was none of that. Rather, he kind of accepted me, like like forgave me. But I still needed to change. And he did not seem to want to force change upon me. He wanted me to desire it. He was not a dictator, but more of a a suggester that I now wanted to please. He was persuasive. Some theologians would call it irresistible. He was irresistible. And somewhere in the midst of of turning from various sins and working to do right things, it became clear to me, this is what life is supposed to be for everyone. I want him, and I want all he has for me. I asked him to take me at some point and do whatever he wanted with me. And that scripture now made sense. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That was it. I was convinced I had been born of the Spirit of God. Again, though I could not see him nor hear him, I still cannot, nor can you. And if you have anyone come up to you and tell you different, beware. (laughs) Although he was now in my house with me. Mostly we, we interacted in the common rooms. I'm taking this metaphor again, you've got to follow this part. Because there were some rooms in my house, and still are, okay, where I don't really want him to go. Though I, I was convinced he wanted to improve me. I was not sure I wanted him to see everything. Get his fingers into it. Third point. Do you still live alone in your house and therefore make your own rules? If you still live alone in your house and make your own rules, there's a word for it. It's called autonomy. It means self, auto, nomi, nomi, no, it's another Latin word, law, self-law. It's the way we start life as sinners, selfish, self-absorbed. We want to possess ourselves. as Adam and Eve's problem. They wanted to decide good and evil, not have God do that. We make the rules, autonomy. And some, as happened to me, pretend Christianity by simply apportioning a small closet space. And then we live and think autonomously. And Jesus is not even in the closet. I wasn't the only one like that. I'm sure of it. There may be some in our own church who still suffer from this aloneness. At the judgment, Jesus says to this kind of person, go away, I never knew you. Look, you cannot live alone and make your own rules all through life or you die a guilty sinner, unsaved, unregenerate, Deserving what you have coming from God, it will be severe. And the logic of it is you never wanted him, and so you will not have him forever. You never wanted him, so you will not have him forever. And what that person has coming is punishment, not forgiveness. You're still in your sins. It is hell, not heaven. If you insist on owning your own house and controlling it and making your own rules, then you have refused to recognize and respond to the good gospel of God's Son. It is the gospel that says God owns you. You must make right with him, and only Jesus can make you right with him. 
you can be forgiven by prayerfully going to him and recognizing that he is the true owner of you. He is the one whose rules you need to follow. He is the one you must love more than yourself. He will help you live differently. And that brings me to the fourth point. When the Lord is in you, in there with you, then you will begin to live under his rules and love his law. Theonomy is the other word. I said autonomy, now theonomy. Theonomy is different than autonomy, whereas autonomy means self-law. Theo, theo, theonomy means God's law. The mind of the person committed to autonomy, it bristles at having God close and having to follow his rules. To the autonomous person, being asked to submit to God feels like you are being asked to give up your freedom. Theonomy means God's law comes first and you can no longer do whatever you want. You won't want to live like that. You no longer get to control things and be master of the house. Theonomy is actually liberating. It satisfies. And that may seem ironic. But turning over your house and life to another is what you were made for. Indeed, the one upon whom the Spirit of God acts soon learns that the lover of his soul has come. Jesus Christ is not an oppressor, but a liberator. He has come to set the captives free, he says. When you open the doors to each room of your house, you begin to realize how much he intends good things for you. He will not ruin your house. He will fix it. He is the strong and kind repairman who loves and cares for the house more than you do. That's the crazy thing. John 14, 15 through 17 says, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Huh. He goes on a little bit later, a few verses only. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Brings me to the fifth point. The big question, Christian, is what condition is your house in? There's a lot that goes on in me. Carousel. And it's not all good. Also, it's not all bad. I confess 
that there are rooms inside of me that still need tons of repair. Why hasn't Jesus remodeled those rooms? We know he wants to. I can only blame me. Thankfully, Paul discusses how confident he is in Scripture that God will finish the work he began in us. Good. It's not as though I don't want him in certain rooms and closets. It's just that I go into them so effortlessly and close the door behind me to be by myself. So I guess I should confess that I don't really want him in those rooms yet. And those are the rooms that hurt me. I imagine that these could be doors that Jesus stands at and knocks to be let in. Do you ever notice, though, when you're in one of those rooms, how trapped you become? Like you can't get out of them? It's like you're trapped in there, chained to some sin. Always a sin. Your eyes do not even see outside of the room. That's how engulfing it can be. You don't see what's on the other side of the door. It has all your attention. It is where you are at that moment. I got a couple of rooms like that, engulfing, that I spend too much time in. One is a smaller room. I spend time there, but it's not real long time. It's like a pantry. It's my room for sulking. Sulking. I go in, close the door. Hmm. I cannot believe I've been treated so dismissively. I'm underappreciated. Poor me. They'll miss me when I'm gone. I don't stay in the pantry too long, you know, because I find out that no one's paying much attention anyhow. <laughs> you know, so you might as well get about life again. There's a larger room, though. Still uh, many years of renovation Jesus has been working at. In this room, I take an imagined offense. I've been wronged, and I harbor resentfulness and bitterness. In that room, when I'm in there, I get angry at the one I believe has harmed me, has hurt me. Hurt is a better word. Should have acted differently. They should have acted differently. And in my mind, I get so Troubled that I lose complete track of how to get out of it. I stew. I stew in there. Jesus is still teaching me 
how to deal with that part of my house. I must take extra caution. He warns me. For that is one room that could threaten the structure of the house. Other sins, of course there are other sins that commit them easily like walking through breezeways. Doesn't make them right. They're just more flippant. Number six, where do I want to go from here? And how about you? Total renovation. Total renovation. Take him into every room. Do not wander off and close the door. God knows the house throughout better than you. He can see you sitting there. Sure, other people might not know where the closets are or have never been upstairs or seen the piles of laundry on the floor, but the Spirit of God knows it throughout. He knows your most ruinous parts, the dilapidated portions. Trust Him. Trust Him. He loves you and only wants what is best But to reconstruct, to to reconstruct a dilapidated portion of any building means, means demolition. Demolition comes before, it precedes construction. And that's painful. And that's what we we just as soon avoid. Repentance comes before delighting in God's law. Trials come before glory. Seventh point, last point. Looking back at my conversion to Christ and all the work he has done in me, I conclude this. I want Christ and his kingdom. Whether I'm fit or unfit, perfected or still much in need of repentance, whether I am persecuted or oppressed, lifted up and surrounded by joyful people, whether I am poor and downtrodden and rich and praised by all, I, I want him. I gotta, I want him. I want him to keep reconstructing me. And I trust his word. Listen, I trust his word as sufficient for the process. You need to, too. Sufficient. His word is sufficient. And I'm sorry. I accept no excuses. I accept no excuses that that house is just unrepairable. It's not built like other houses throughout the world. If someone suggests that the word of God and his spirit is insufficient to repair a person or even a civilization. If someone suggests that, saying, no, no, that person needs psychological help, they need a psychiatrist, we need some pharmaceuticals, etc., they cannot obey God otherwise. We need science, we need many religions working together, we need sociological guidance to embrace more of a communal effort for mankind. We need more isms. 
I say, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus and his word and the rest you can keep if you need to. God's word and his spirit is sufficient to meet the greatest needs. Keep all the world's programs and political philosophies and religions and science and just give me Christ. When I hear these other solutions to heal what ails mankind called out in the universities, the judicial chambers, and among our political representatives and on TV, I hear a wolf in sheep's clothing. I hear the ancient serpent offering alternatives. You should take Jesus at his word. You should trust him. And ultimately your faith in, your faith in and obedience to his word is all he expects from you. And he's the only one you answer to, or will answer to. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would continue to work in uh, this old house, and um, that I would not fight you in the process, that those rooms that I uh, run off and hide in, that you would uh, knock real hard, break down the door, and, and do your thing. Forgive me for harboring and uh, protecting those, those places in me. I pray the same for this whole congregation, that we would be open to you and your work in us, that we would be repenters of sin or from sin and, and uh, fasteners, people who fasten themselves to you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Will the deacons please come forward for this